You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Anonymous U.S. intelligence sources call the Olympic hacks a Russian false flag operation. More cyber attacks are expected from the infrastructure set up to hit the games. Calls for international norms for cyber conflict rise. CrowdStrike's global threat report sees proliferation and commodification of attack tools. An ad network serves a crypto jacker. Are they malicious smartphones or just a trade war? And a scorecard for hacking heraldry. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, February 26, 2018. Anonymous sources in the U.S. intelligence community are telling The Washington Post and others that Russia's GRU was responsible for the hack that marred the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics opening ceremonies. The U.S. sources also assert that it was a false flag operation intended to look like a North Korean hack. The GRU accomplished this through some code reuse, use of North Korean IP addresses, and some scattered Korean language cues. If this is indeed a false flag operation, two things are noteworthy. First, the imposture was pretty thin, because suspicion fell almost immediately on Russia, as private sector security firms commenting on the incident noted that it had the hallmarks of a Russian operation. Second, the GRU, Russia's military intelligence service, is well known as the lair of Fancy Bear. Fancy Bear, in apparent retaliation for anti-doping sanctions against the Russian team, had begun doxing the International Olympic Committee and individual non-Russian athletes late last year. For those interested in the probable organization charts, the GRU operators are believed to work in the agency's main center for special technology. They are the same outfit generally denounced last week as responsible for last year's NotPetya pseudo-ransomware campaign. Observers think that those who hacked the Olympic Games sites also succeeded in establishing persistence in the victims' networks. They had gained access to a number of routers, and they are expected by many to use the infrastructure established for the Games in future attacks against other targets. The International Olympic Committee is reviewing Russia's behavior this week, with a view to possibly reinstating the country's national team as an official participant in the Olympics. The main issue is doping, but it's reasonable to expect the hacking may also figure in their deliberations. Olympic hacking, it's good to recall, goes back to Rio 2016, or even, if you count the bogus Ku Klux Klan leaflets the Soviet security organs printed and distributed to scare people away from Los Angeles in the pre-internet days of 1984. 
Pyeongchang, with its hacks and doping scandals, is now in the books. But tomorrow is another day. Russian athletes were permitted to compete as individuals under the non-flagged, non-anthemed collective called Olympic Athletes from Russia, or OAR. The OAR designation and restrictions didn't prevent the athletes, formerly known as the Russian hockey team, from belting out the Russian national anthem on the podium. So there, IOC. Nor, alas, did it completely inhibit doping. One of those popped for doping during the games, tempted fate by sporting a sweatshirt emblazoned in English with, I don't do doping, I am the sport. We note that the shirt was in the Russian red, white, and blue, which colors the IOC wished the athletes formerly known as the Russian team to avoid. Those colors were okay for other teams, of course, France, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, Slovenia, the U.S., the Netherlands, and even the U.K., albeit expressed with the crosses of St. George and St. Andrew, and so on. So, in our view, the IOC should expect more doxing. Sport hacking is vexing, particularly to fans, participants, and other interested parties, but of course many more serious varieties of state-sponsored cyber attack have become common. Sentiment in favor of some sort of international peaceful agreement in cyberspace grows, especially in the tech industry. There are calls for a truce to limit cyber conflict. Unfortunately, such treaties are unlikely to do much more than afford a background against which it might be possible to blame and shame. Given the notorious difficulties of attribution, even when state agents are as noisy and heedless of detection as Fancy Bear, even this hope may be a forlorn one. Another challenge to the limitation of cyber warfare is noted by CrowdStrike's 2018 Global Threat Report, issued this morning, Attack tools have become commoditized, and less capable states are gaining access to code that would have been beyond their ability to develop and deploy as recently as a few years ago. And the report notes commodity criminal tools are also being repurposed by states and redeployed as cyber weapons. There are strong economic and industrial policy forces working to exacerbate cyber tensions, if Chinese smartphone manufacturers are to be believed. Australia's Defense Department has joined its U.S. counterparts in banning Huawei and ZTE phones as security risks. Huawei sees the bans as moves in a larger trade war prompted by industry fears of the Chinese company's potential to dominate the market. Biology is more and more intersecting with the digital domain, with genomes being decoded, automation in drug development, disease surveillance, and food production and safety – but with these new capabilities come new risks. Randall Murch is research lead and professor of practice at Virginia Tech, and he's heading up an effort to understand the complex issues of cyber biosecurity. Cyber biosecurity is an emerging new discipline that really tries to bring together sort of the world of cyber and the world of bio, um, and that's broadly based, and then also with the security components. So um, we've actually crafted a definition, which is um, it's, it's morphing as, as we talk, <laughs> but very quickly, it's developing understanding of the vulnerabilities to unwanted surveillance, intrusions, malicious and harmful activities, which can occur within or at the interfaces of commingled life sciences, that includes medicine, cyber-physical and infrastructure systems. And what we're seeking to do is developing measures to prevent, protect, mitigate, investigate, and attribute those threats. So that's the explanation. Can you give us some real-world examples of where these things intersect and how it might affect us? 
Uh, first of all, the life sciences are heavily dependent on collection of large amounts of data uh, that's basically IT-enabled, and that data is then exploited by advanced computational methods, increasingly AI, and, and some of that data is particularly sensitive when it re relates to somebody's personal health, all the way down to their personal genomics. And so that data is moving around in the cloud, um, and that data is not secured. Two uh, might be uh, if a, um, a company is uh, building a new therapeutic or vaccine to something, uh, an infectious disease or a chronic disease, and wants to maintain their competitive advantage because they've invested lots of money into this, they want to protect their investment. So the protection against theft of intellectual property would be another example. Uh, another might be uh, over in agriculture and food systems where um, drones are used for field uh, disease surveillance and monitoring crops and so forth. Uh, those drones obviously have communication links that are not secure. And if they are corrupted, uh, the, the drone may not be as effective as it, as it intended to be. Another is an area of process control. So in biomanufacturing, uh, on small scale, there are more humans in the loop uh, with some IT-enabled uh, support, such as the cyber-physical interfaces in fermentation. When you're growing up a, a, a microbe that's producing a product of interest, and as you scale up, and including in big biomanufacturing, there's less human intervention and more automation. You know, we hear these stories related to privacy with people uh, getting their DNA tested um, and then, you know, the DNA testing companies claiming uh, the rights to your DNA, you know, th things like that. Um, uh, is there a sense that, um, you know, people are giving up this data without really knowing what the long-term consequences might be? I, I think that is true. And, and also, it's, it's one thing for a company to have a legal, you know, arrangement with you uh, that, you know, they're going to, you know, you're going to provide the DNA and, uh, and they're going to analyze the DNA and provide you some set of results that you're interested in. But also then what happens to the DNA when they hold on to it is kind of where you were going with that. But if, um, if for example, you have um, a situation which is actually occurring now where uh, a, co a company and uh, let's say an, uh, some kind of organization or entity in the U.S. outsources the analysis of DNA, whether it's from an uh, electronic health records perspective or a personal genomics perspective, um, they can actually use that and they may be pl playing by different rules than we have with respect to what can be done with the DNA or the, you know, the information and also how it's protected for, for privacy purposes. So imagine, for example, the personal genomics, of, let's say, of a military unit, something like that, or one of our military units was stolen, if you will, um, and, and it, it was then fully analyzed, and our, an adversary really understood, you know, what the attributes and limitations of for performance, let's say, or vulnerability to a disease or something like that. Um, you can imagine that that would be a, a significant advantage, uh, you know, to an adversary as they look at, uh, at us uh, as a, that we're a threat and what they might do with that. And 
you know, and obviously another one would be, you know, if a, an entity, let's say it's the Department, our Department of Defense or some other country's uh, military enterprise is investing in biotherapeutic or a vaccine uh, for an infectious disease or something, and the adversary understands what the strengths and weaknesses are and builds um, capabilities around that to avoid that antimicrobial vaccine, whatever it is. That's Randall Murch from Virginia Tech. You can learn more about their efforts in cyber biosecurity on the Virginia Tech website. In cybercrime news, researchers at security firm Kihu 360 NetLab say an unnamed ad network installs cryptojackers via advertising it serves on its customers' sites. It's using a domain generation algorithm to evade ad blockers. T-Mobile patches a bug that could have enabled customer account hijacking through the company's website. Whether the vulnerability was actually exploited is unknown. In industry news, FishMe has been acquired by a consortium of private equity investors for a reported $400 million. The company will rebrand itself as CoFence, the better, it says, to reflect the range of its offerings. And finally, to return to CrowdStrike's 2018 Global Threat Report, we note that the security firm has compiled a useful scorecard that lets you know your hacking animals. Bears are Russian. Kolimas, mythical winged horses, kind of Sino-Korean pegasus, are North Korean. Jackals are hacktivists, which seems to say something about CrowdStrike's low view of this category of threat actor. Kittens are Iranian. Persian cats, right? Leopards are from Pakistan. Pandas are, naturally, Chinese. Spiders are cybercriminals. Tigers come from India. So there you go. But we think no nation should be left behind. People should think up animal names for threat actors belonging to other nations. Consider starting with the Five Eyes, for example. They deserve some love, too. Australia seems obvious. The kangaroo, especially since the wombat, is already taken by some guys from Pittsburgh. But you could also go with a kookaburra. New Zealand is probably going to have to be a kiwi. Canada offers a couple of good options, but we'd pick the lucky loon over the blue-nosed beaver. The UK should be maybe a lion or a unicorn, or both. The US is difficult. The eagle is pretty obvious, too obvious maybe. Local pride suggests that maybe Maryland's state reptile, the diamondback terrapin, would be a good animal for America. Equation group is sort of bland, don't you think? Shadow brokers. Why not terrible terrapin, topper turtle, dapper diamondback? We'll leave this as an exercise for our listeners. Let us know what you think. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. 
So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Joe, good to have you back. It's good to be back, Dave. So we've been hearing uh, these ongoing stories about people uh, leaving things in uh, AWS buckets and Amazon Web Service containers and either having them misconfigured or just not having the proper security settings on them. Right. The most recent one being the the red disk virtual disk that was up in Amazon. Right. Just completely unprotected. Right. From the Department of Defense. Right. I don't think people are intentionally leaving things out in the open, or do you think that they're just relying on uh, security by obscurity? I I don't know. It could could be that somebody put it out there intentionally, but I think that the much more likely explanation is that somebody put it up there going, nobody's ever going to look here. Uh, Somebody's going to look there. Wherever there is on the internet, somebody's looking. It's just a just a fact of life, and there, there is no such thing as security through obscurity because there are a lot of people who spend time looking for these kind of things out there that are just available and open. Right. So if you have something out there that's available and open and you put something you know, as a matter of convenience up so you can get to it from a, another place without having to authenticate, you're not the only one doing that. Somebody else is going to do that. And and they're doing it in an automated way, right? Sure, I mean, absolutely. Just, no there are manually tools out poking there. around. They're, yeah, they're not manually poking around. There are tools out there that you can script these things that go out and look, and if they get a response from from a web server or or, or some some Amazon site out there that says, "Hey, there's some interesting things here," then they'll go in and manually look around. Yeah, it also strikes me that how often this seems to be third parties, where it's a it's a contractor or. It was someone who was trusted with the data, right? Who sticks it somewhere again for convenience, and I just—it's hard to know how you control that. You know, there are controls in place for how you're supposed to handle classified information. Sure, sure. So, <laughs> well, classified this, information, yes, right. And I, I believe this this red disk leak uh, falls under those guidelines. Yeah. So this is clearly somebody mishandling this, in my opinion. Are they being malicious? I, I couldn't say. In fact, if I had to guess, I'd say probably not. Right. What's that old saying? I've never assigned malice to something that could be explained with uh, incompetence <laughs> exactly. or, or laziness. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. So I guess the lesson here is, um, well, number one, don't assume that uh, you can just stick something somewhere online and that uh, no one will find it. Yep, because somebody will find it. Those days are over. Yep. Uh, but also, you, know, you need to, um, when you're configuring these things, you need to make sure, double check, have someone maybe watching your back. Right, lock them down. Audit them. That's a good way to say it. Right, audit them. Excellent. Excellent advice as always. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. 
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.